those out. There's no filling blanks tonight. Uh, I just wanted to give you a brief summary of what we will be covering this evening. Uh, we will obviously come back to the prayer list in a moment, but uh, as we read through our our verses tonight, because we have a great deal to cover. <clears throat> Just kind of a little bit of oversimplification as we read down through the chapters. We're going to pick up reading in verse 16 of chapter 8 tonight. Remember I told you last week we had a lot more to deal with tonight. And so, uh, thank you guys. Thank you. As we will read from 8.16 down through all of chapter 9 initially, and then we'll go into chapter 10 later uh, this evening. But as we read down through it, I know sometimes now, who is this guy over, which country, who, you know, sometimes it just helps. Uh, we will see over Israel tonight, Joram, and then Jehu, okay? They will be the kings. Over the southern kingdom, Judah, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah. They will be the kings that come across in our reading tonight over Judah. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Israel, northern kingdom. Judah, southern kingdom. And then we get into chapter 10, and it'll mention Hazael. And just keep in mind, he is over Syria, sometimes referred to as Aram. Okay? So as we read these verses tonight, I hope just having that oversimplification might help you keep the names together. Let's pick up in, in verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zair with his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders. Did you need to announce something? No. Oh, okay. I thought you were coming in to tell us something. I'm sorry. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time. As for the other events of Jehoram's reign, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoram rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the, in the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was uh, Adaliah, a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel, he followed the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. 
Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram. So King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramoth in his battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take this flask of olive oil with you and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. So the young prophet went to Ramoth-Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, Here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds that Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu said, if you desire to make me king, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel. Because Joram was resting there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. When the lookout, standing on the tower in Jezreel, saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, Do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, This is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied. Fall in behind me. The lookout reported the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi, he drives like a maniac. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? 
How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and rich witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Ben-Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Iblim, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem, buried him with his ancestors in his tomb in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah, had become king of Judah. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, looked out a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered the wall and horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, this is the word of the Lord, that he spoke through his servant, Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in a plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Quite a bit to read, isn't it? Now, after having concentrated on Israel for a time, the focus in verse 16 The focus in verse 16 of chapter 8 now is going to shift back to Judah. Judah or the southern kingdom. Now, you remember Jehoshaphat who went into battle with Ahab. We saw that in 1 Kings. Ahab disguised himself while Jehoshaphat wore his robes. Now, that didn't matter because Ahab was killed anyway. Remember that stray error? It was anything but stray because the Lord guided it and yet Ahab and he died later that day. Well, for the most part, Jehoshaphat was a godly king, but he certainly had his shortcomings too. Uh, he was one of those guys that followed the Lord most of the time. And that's how 1 Kings ended. Well, for five years, Jehoram served as co-regent with his father Jehoshaphat. And when Jehoshaphat died, Jehoram became the king of the southern kingdom. Jehoram was married to Adaliah, a daughter of Ahab. This marriage was part of a treaty between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And so, unfortunately, we see the wall of separation gradually crumbling between David's dynasty in Judah and the descendants of Ahab in Israel. The future of God's great plan of salvation depended on the continuation of the Davidic dynasty. 
so Jehoram was playing right into the enemy's hand by compromising with the evil rulers of Israel, the northern kingdom, Jehoram displeased the Lord and he weakened the nation. Now, verse 18 indicates to us that he must have officially sanctioned Baal worship in Judah as Ahab had done in Israel. And so just as Jezebel had incited Ahab to do evil in the sight of the Lord, so Adaliah influenced Jehoram. Now that's sad, isn't it? It's, it's really a commentary on not being unequally yoked. It's a commentary that you can't date the devil's daughter and come out clean. Well, look at what happens. Instead of being the distinctive people of the Lord in the southern kingdom, they are becoming much like their brothers and kinfolk in the northern kingdom. And so there is a slippery slope that is well underway. Folks, it's a lesson to us. We've got to be godly on purpose. It takes commitment and work to be God's people. If you let down your guard, just go along with the crowd, pretty soon you're going to look just like the world. No wonder the Apostle Paul said of himself, I die daily. We have to guard ourselves. Now I want you to understand the first act that Jehoram did as king. Take your Bible and turn over to 2 Chronicles 21. 2 Chronicles 21. And let's read verses 1 through 7. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, and Jehoram, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoram's brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azarahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father had given them many gifts of silver and gold and articles of value, as well as fortified cities in Judah. But he had given the kingdom to Jehoram because he was his firstborn son. When Jehoram established himself firmly over his father's kingdom, he put all of his brothers to the sword along with some of the officials of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever." And so he murders all of his brothers and anybody who might threaten his authority. He wanted his brothers out of the way so that they couldn't even unite and oppose his policies. His policies in following the idolatrous ways of the northern kingdom. The Bible declares in verse 18 that he did evil in God's sight. 18 back in our text. And yet God did not destroy the land because of his covenant with David. And so against the backdrop of the evil of man, what do we see? We see the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God, right? That's exactly what we see. Well, you can't help but wonder if verse 20 wasn't disciplined from God. It says, In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. I'm back in 2 Kings 8. Edom revolts. Joram, another name for Jehoram, advanced against Edom, but Edom prevailed. And Jehoram and his army barely escaped with their lives. And then Libna revolted as well. 
Go back to 2 Chronicles 21 for a moment and look at verses 11 and following. 2 Chronicles 21 and verse 11 says, He had also built high places on the hills of Judah and had caused the people of Jerusalem to prostrate themselves and had led Judah astray. Joram received a letter from Elijah the prophet which said, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. You have not followed the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or of Asa, king of Judah, but you have followed the ways of the kings of Israel, and you've led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves, just as the house of Ahab did. You've also murdered your own brothers, members of your own family, men who were better than you. So now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering disease of the bowels until the disease causes your bowels to come out. The Lord aroused against Jehoram the hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs who lived near the Cushites. They attacked Judah, invaded it, and carried off all the goods found in the king's palace together with his sons and wives. Not a son was left to him except Ahaziah, the youngest. After all this, the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. In the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great pain. His people made no funeral fire in his honor as they had for his predecessors. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Now, Elijah went to heaven in 2 Kings 2.11. But King Jehoram is mentioned in 2 Kings 1.17. This means that Elijah was alive and ministering during the early part of Jehoram's reign. Now, writing this letter to King Jehoram may have been one of the very last things that Elijah did as God's prophet. And what we see there in this letter from Elijah to the king, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Town after town revolts against him. And then he ends up with a horrible disease. And in the end, he dies and nobody misses him. What a sad life. All because of disobedience to God. Now, unfortunately, his son Ahaziah was much like him. Ahaziah was also a follower of the Ahab clan of the northern kingdom. He links up with Joram, the king of Israel, to go to war against Syria. Joram is wounded and Ahaziah goes to Jezreel to comfort him. As one commentator says, why this attention to seemingly tri trivial detail? And as the writer goes on to say, the Lord is getting them all together in one place. Because he is about to bring an end to the house of Omri, just like he said he would do. God is about to send Jehu. Jehu's going to go down there and attack him. Folks, if you don't think God can engineer the, the details of your downfall and death, all you got to do is read these verses. God's getting these two kings together. It's going to be easier for Jehu. And as we get into chapter 9 of 2 Kings, we see that God is about to remove the cancer of Baalism from the nation of Israel. Now, what if you had a loved one that had cancer and the surgeon said, we can cut the whole tumor out? Would you be angry with the sermon? With the surgeon? Of course not. You would be grateful. Well, God 
God's about to cut the cancer out of the house of Omri. He's about to cut out Baalism. The family of Ahab had brought terrible evil to the nation, and Elijah had announced the Lord's intentions to perform radical surgery and cut out the evil. I want you to go back to 1 Kings chapter 21 a minute. We're still in the introduction. We're going to get to the points in a minute. Uh, 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. And beginning in verse 20. 1 Kings 21, beginning in verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Well, these words are about to come to pass. Elijah's words are about to come to pass in the passages we look at tonight. Because the cancer had spread so far and had embedded itself so deeply, it was going to require desperate measures to get rid of it all. God was going to use a very flawed man as his surgeon. And this man's name is Jehu. Jehu would boast of his zeal for the Lord, but at times, as we'll see, his zeal became misguided. At times, he was more of a butcher than a surgeon. And in Hosea 1.4, God said that he was going to end up judging the ruthlessness of Jehu. He was going to use Jehu to rid Israel and Judah of Baalism, but in Jehu's zeal going too far, God says ultimately he's also going to deal with Jehu. Kind of reminds me of when Habakkuk said, Lord, how long are you going to leave the nation in a mess? And God said, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians to discipline my people Judah. And Habakkuk goes, wait a minute. The Babylonians are bad. You're going to use them to discipline your people? God says, yeah. But he says, after, after they've disciplined my people, then I'm going to turn on Babylon too, and I'm going to discipline them. Well, God's going to use Jehu as his instrument to judge these kings and the evil they brought. But because he goes too far, God's going to end up dealing with him too. But again, Jehu was God's man for a special purpose. Years before, God had commissioned Elijah to anoint Jehu. 
You can see 1 Kings 19.16 for that. Now, we don't know why Elijah didn't do this. Could it be that Elijah's depression, saying that he had had enough, made God go ahead and raise up Elisha sooner? It could be that, that Elijah maybe ended things a little bit too early. Elijah's one of the greatest heroes in the Bible. But maybe in human weakness, he quit too soon and God passed Elijah's work on to another, Elisha. If that's the case, it's a reminder to us that we need to carry out and finish God's assignments. As great as Elijah is, we're reminded here that God took him and there was unfinished business. Now, the first thing I want you to see tonight, we're finally to the message. The anointing of Jehu. The anointing of Jehu. In verses 1 to 13 of 2 Kings 9. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets, said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Bimshi. Go to him. Get him away from his companions. Take him into an upper room, inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. Now folks, the anointing of a successor while the ruling king is still alive could be a very dangerous and a volatile thing. But Elisha, in obedience to what God wants, sends a messenger to anoint Jehu. Now remember from the close of chapter 8, the Israelite army is at Ramoth Gilead. The king is recovering there. The servant is to go among the Israelite troops and call out Jehu for a private meeting. He's to pour oil on his head, anoint him as the new king over Israel. By an anointing by one of God's prophets would make the whole thing legitimate. And then Elisha tells the servant, get out of there fast. Because he knows there's about to be trouble. Verses 4 to 10. This servant tells Jehu what his assignment is to be. And so keep in mind, a certain amount of Jehu's brutality is divine commission. Again, Jehu's going to get carried away, but nonetheless, God is using him to destroy the house of Ahab and kill Jezebel and avenge all of the blood of the prophets that Jezebel herself killed. And so Jehu's commission is a lot like Joshua's. When Joshua and the children of Israel were to enter the promised land and kill all of the Canaanites, women and children included, there was to be no remnant of the Canaanites who would end up polluting them as the people of God. It's a similar type thing here with Jehu. He is to kill off all of Ahab's family. Ahab's family has brought disgrace and idolatry into the promised land. They've corrupted God's people. And so God's going to deal very severely with Ahab's descendants and with Jezebel. Again, that's a lesson to us. God may not deal with you immediately because Ahab's family has continued and Jezebel has continued. But as somebody has said, God's wheels of justice may grind slowly, but they grind surely nonetheless. There's a payday someday, and Ahab is about to find that out. Let that be another lesson to us. You can thumb your nose at God. You can thumb your nose at God's servants. You can live like the devil if you want and laugh all the while thinking you're getting away with it. But there's a day of judgment looming over you and you'll not escape. And when that day arrives, woe to you. In verses 9 through 11, 
We see that Jehu's men were curious about this prophet. All this secrecy and then the way the man scampered out of there. What's going on, Jehu? Was this some madman? They pressed Jehu who finally tells them what the man was up to. And notice their response. They immediately accept that Jehu is now king. Now, folks, this tells us that there was, there was a lot of disenchantment already over the current administration. People were ready for a change. And so they blow the horn and they proclaim Jehu as king. So even though this guy's still serving, they declare Jehu is now the king. Secondly tonight, I want you to see the zeal of Jehu. Beginning in verse 14. Jehu realizes he needs to act quickly. He tells the men to keep everything a secret if they are of a mind to follow him. He knows the king of Israel that he's replacing along with the king of Judah are at Jezreel. The one king is recuperating, the other king is there to comfort him and visit with him. And so again, he's got both kings in one place, or I should say, God's got both kings in one place. Folks, this, this is good drama. Who needs TV? I mean, this is some good drama going on here. We're told of Jehu's haste. King Joram of Israel is anxious for any news of military affairs on the front lines. When the guard announced that troops were approaching, the king sent a messenger with the question, do you come in peace? It may not be a question of suspicion. It can be translated another way in the Hebrew. It may be a question with no suspicion in it. It can be translated, hey man, how's everything going? Have we won? Well, Jehu refuses to answer and just tells the man to fall in. Same thing happens the second time. The next time, the guard tells Joram, they're still coming towards us and the messengers we've sent out to inquire of peace haven't come back. They appear to be riding with them now. And we know that Jehu was the first mass car driver because the card now tells the king of Israel the front chariot must be Jehu because he's driving furiously. <laughs> the, king's, the king is still not really suspicious though because after all, these are his soldiers approaching and Jehu has been one of his commanders. And so the king of Israel... And the king of Judah mount up and they ride out to meet up with them. And it's providence where they all meet up. Verse 21 says they meet at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. This is the guy that Jezebel had killed because Ahab, her husband, wanted Naboth's property for a garden. And God said he was going to judge them over killing Naboth. This time the king of Israel says, Hello, Jehu, how are things going? Are we winning? Is there peace? And Jehu's response would have told the two kings immediately, They're in trouble. The king of Israel runs, Jehu kills him has his body thrown out on Naboth's property just as God had said would happen. Folks, this is precise fulfillment of prophecy that was given 20 years earlier. But it all came to pass exactly the way God said it would. They pursue the king of Judah and they kill him too. They wound him and he dies later. Apparently, uh, Jehu might be acting on his own with this killing. Now Jehu turns to go and deal with Jezebel. She knows he's coming. When he meets her, she's gotten all dressed up for the occasion. And she insults him. By calling him Zimri, she's calling to mind another man 
who started an uprising who only lived seven days before he was killed. And so Jezebel is implying that Jehu is going to meet Zimri's same fate. He led an uprising against his master, which ended up killing him too. So she's trying to intimidate him. She's trying to scare him, trying to get him to believe that the same thing's going to happen to him. Now, some see in this that she might have been trying to save her skin and offer Jehu a deal, implying, you know, why don't you team up with me now, and uh, it'll be us together. Uh, you kill me, and the men with you will probably do you in, uh, but me and you together, Jehu will be a force to reckon with. She was offering him a deal. Jehu didn't buy it. He told the men with Jezebel to throw her down, and they did. They're looking up. And he says, anybody up there with me, throw her down. And they throw her down right in the midst where they are on their horses. And when she splats, her blood splatters the wall. And I guess it so startles the horses that the men are on that they, they trample her too. What's Jehu do? Just goes inside to eat. And then I guess he softens a bit with, uh, with the feasting. And he says, even though she was a wicked woman and cursed by God, out of respect that she was the daughter of a king, go and bury her. But by the time they go out to retrieve her body, packs of dogs have eaten her flesh. And so now there can be no burial. Without a burial, there's no what? There's no grave. And with no grave, guess what? Nobody can ever visit the grave site to pay respect to her or honor to her. She wasn't deserving of respect and honor. And so a grave would never be present to inspire anybody to honor her memory. Notice that her corpse, in verse, uh, in verse 37 of chapter 9, just Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel. Dogs had eaten her. And what do dogs eventually do after they eat? They got to use the bathroom. Dung. And that dung is going to be what? Jezebel. <laughs> Digested, right? <laughs> That's all Jezebel is going to end up as. Waste of dogs. Dung from dogs because they've eaten them. Here again, folks, exactly what God had said would happen to her. Right? Exactly. Then we get into chapter 10. Now there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, you have your master's sons with you and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city and weapons. Now as soon as this letter reaches you, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne, then fight for your master's house. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think is best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, If you're on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu they had brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. 
The next morning, Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he announced through his servant Elijah. Again, what had the Lord announced? That all the house of Ahab would be done away with. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as his chief men, his close friends, his priests, leaving him no survivor. Jehu then set, set out and went towards Samaria at Beth-Aked, of the shepherds, he met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They said, We're relatives of Ahaziah, and we've come down to greet the families of the king and the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Beth Aked. Forty-two of them. He left no survivor. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Joe. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Je Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. When, Zehu, when Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, now, now folks, he's going to deceive them on purpose here. Listen, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will save him much. What? He's just killed Ahab's descendants for bringing Baalism in. And now he's going to now he's going to serve Baal even more. Well, again, it was a trick. Sermon all summon all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests. See that no one is missing because I'm going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. Jehu said, call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent word throughout Israel and all the servants of Baal came. Not one stayed away. They crowded into the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Jehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, bring robes for all the servants of Baal. So he brought out robes for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. Je, uh, Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Look around and see that no one who serves the Lord is here with you. He wants to get true servants of the Lord out. He doesn't want them to get mixed up in this. Only servants of Baal are to be in this assembly. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I am placing in your hands escape, it will be your life for his life. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in and kill them, let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out, then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal, they burned it, probably referring to the pole, Asherah pole that would go, the wooden pole that would go along with the, the stone. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal, tore down the temple of Baal, and people have used it for a latrine to this day. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all that I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, 
with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazel overpowered the Israelites throughout their ter territory, east of the Jordan, all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aurora by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his ancestors was buried in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So chapter 10 is the record of Jehu systematically killing off everybody of Ahab's house. First, we see there in this chapter what? The sons of Ahab being killed off. This is in fulfillment of 1 Kings 21 21. 1 Kings 21 21, God said that he would destroy every last male of Ahab's line. Now, a lot of people say in verse 11 of chapter 10. That what we have here, perhaps, is Jehu going too far. And they connect this verse with Hosea 1.4 when God says that he'll judge the house of Jehu for being too bloodthirsty. Well, in verse 15, Jehu meets a man who is among a conservative purist group in Israel. And so Jehu finds a soulmate in this man who joins him. And then in verses 18 to 27, we, we find a great story. Everyone knows that Jehu is against the house of Ahab, but they don't necessarily know what religious convictions he has. And so he's going to play off of their ignorance of this. In a move of trickery, he pretends to be a worshiper of Baal. He wants everybody connected with Baalism to meet calls a solemn assembly, has them all dress a certain way. He gets all the true servants of the Lord out of there. Uh, he's, he's pretending like he's excluding anybody connected with Jehovah. In reality, he's just trying to get them to safety. And then he orders everybody in that assembly to be killed. And they turn the house of Baal into an outhouse. Literally. The house of Baal is turned into an outhouse. And so verse 28 says that Jehu has removed Baalism from the land. But do you remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, when he said he was going to be hard on people and tax them? And Jeroboam led the ten tribes of the north away. And Jeroboam set up golden calves to be worshipped in the northern part of the northern kingdom and then in the southern part of the northern kingdom so nobody would have to travel that far to go and worship the golden calves. Why did Jehu do all that he did against Baalism and then not do away with the sin of Jeroboam? It's, it's disappointing. God commends him and says, well done for what he's done concerning the house of Ahab and Baalism. He promises that Jehu will have four generations of kings in his family. But again, it's highlighted that Jehu did not wholeheartedly follow the Lord. That's a lot to cover tonight, isn't it? Some takeaways. God may delay judgment, but he will certainly carry it out in his timing. Secondly, sin cannot be dealt with partially. Thirdly, zeal is good, but it's no substitute for complete obedience. Fourth, we need to be careful in some areas of our lives 
but careless in others. Jehu being an example of that. Okay. Woo! Lot to cover. Comments. Pastor, if I remember right, 
high, but they didn't get rid of the high places. Yeah. I can't remember the king. Later on, there is a king that does get rid of all the high places. Yeah. 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 So many of them left the high places, which would have been the altars to Baal. So many of the kings that did right in the eyes of the Lord still left the high places. 